coming up in today's Film Disruptors. I had the name of a young film editor named Marty Scorsese given to me by a friend. And um, I looked him up and he came up to meet me and he gave me this script he wanted to make called Season of the Witch. And um, then I went down and saw his student films and his shorts and I really liked them and I was so naive. I really didn't know that you weren't supposed to invest your own money in making movies. And so we made a movie which ended up being called Mean Streets. And, you know, luckily it really worked out. Hello and welcome to season two of Film Disruptors. My name is Alex Stoltz and this is the show about the artists and entrepreneurs redefining storytelling and sharing their insights and strategies with you. And today I'm excited to welcome Jonathan Taplin to the show. John has a pretty extraordinary CV. Here is just a selection of some of his career highlights. He was manager of Bob Dylan and the band. Producing credits include Martin Scorsese's breakthrough hit, Mean Streets, as well as several other high-profile films with Vim Vendors, Gus Van Sant. In the 80s, he moved more into the corporate world, uh, where he saved Walt Disney uh, from a corporate raid. He was founder of one of the very first VOD streaming services, and we talk about that in the show. He's director of USC Annenberg Innovation Lab, and more recently, author of Move Fast and Break Things, how Facebook, Google, and Amazon have cornered culture and undermined democracy, which the Financial Times nominated as one of the best business books of last year. I caught up with John recently from his office in Pacific Palisades, and in a wide-ranging conversation, we talk about his career in film, music, and writing. We also course dive into his brilliant book move fast and break things and discuss what john describes as the stranglehold that amazon facebook and google have on culture and commerce and we explore what this means for storytellers and artists in the new digital age if you are enjoying the show or just want to find out more there are a couple of ways to stay in touch firstly subscribe on itunes Just click subscribe on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as it's now known, to get the latest episodes as soon as they drop. You can also sign up for updates at the home of Film Disruptors. That's www.alexstoltz.com. Just enter your email to receive all the latest Film Disruptors news and episodes straight to your inbox. And this is also where you can access previous episodes, find out more about John and our featured guests, and of course, get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. So that just leads me to say thank you for listening. And now I'm going to hand you over to Jonathan Taplin. And I started the show by asking Jonathan about the reception to his book since its publication. It's been pretty amazing. Uh, I mean, I think that when it first came out, uh, there was some resistance to the ideas And then, you know, the news cycle has kind of helped it a lot because every two or three months, some new story would come out about how Facebook had been conned by Cambridge Analytica or not conned by Cambridge Analytica or or some other outrage would come out. So the story kept 
continuing and kept kind of being aided by the news. And so what was supposed to be like a, a three-week book tour turned into like a one-year-long book tour. So it's been kind of amazing. And have you? has there also been backlash against what you've put out there? Uh, remarkably little. Hmm. I, I'm, I'm really shocked. I mean, there are always a few trolls on Twitter who are, who are saying that, you know, I'm being unrealistic or I'm, I'm a Luddite or something like that. But there are very few. I mean, I've been shocked. I mean, even people inside Facebook and Google have come up to me and said, this needs to be said. So in that sense, it's a good thing. So much of what you posit in the book seems to be informed by your own experiences and uh, your own career. I mean, I'd love to, you'd love to hear, you know, a bit about that journey, John, and, you know, what, where, how you got into filmmaking and I guess why you decided uh, to, to leave that behind at some point. Well, it's a, it's kind of a long story, but it, it starts in 1965. I was a young kid about to go into Princeton University, and I went to the Newport Folk Festival. And it just so happened that that was the year that Bob Dylan decided to go electric. And I was lucky enough to meet Bob's manager, a man named Albert Grossman, who was at that time the most famous manager in the folk music business. He had Dylan and Peter, Paul and Mary and Paul Butterfield and Odetta and, you know, just pretty much everybody that was important in the folk music business. And um, he put me to work managing, road managing a group called the Jim Queskin Jug Band, uh, which was very popular in the late 60s. And then I kind of worked my way up to... Dylan and the band. And when I graduated from Princeton in 69, I went to work full time. I moved to Woodstock and went to work full time for them and spent, you know, three, almost four years doing tours with them and uh, going to the Isle of Wight with Bob Dylan and meeting the Beatles and you know, all sorts of interesting things. And out of that came uh, George Harrison asking me to produce the concert for Bangladesh for him. And then when that was over, I, I really realized that a lot of my friends and the people that I really loved musically had stopped touring in the early 70s. Some of them were, you know, having drug problems. Others were just tired of the road. And um, so I just went out to California. I had the name of a young film editor named Marty Scorsese given to me by a friend. And um, I looked him up and he came up to meet me and he gave me this script he wanted to make called Season of the Witch. And um, then I went down and saw his student films and his shorts and I really liked them and I was so naive I really didn't know that you weren't supposed to invest your own money in making movies. And so we made a movie which ended up being called Mean Streets. And, you know, luckily it really worked out. It was a really good movie. 
And it was Marty's first chance to really express himself in a personal way. He had made one movie for Roger Corman called Boxcar Bertha, but but this was different. And so, you know, we we took it to the Cannes Film Festival. Pauline Kael wrote extensively about it, and it became a, a kind of a cult movie, which, you know, almost 50 years later is still earning money and doing well. It's just one of those magic phenomena. So then... I started producing more stuff. I did. I helped Dylan and the band do the tour 74. And then eventually the band decided that they wanted to retire. And so I got Marty to direct a documentary called The Last Waltz, which was kind of the final concert of the band. And that worked out really well. And then I just continued making movies. I made a movie called Under Fire with Nick Nolde and Gene Hackman and Joanna Cassidy, which was about the Nicaraguan war. And eventually I found myself at Walt Disney in 84 as an independent producer. And a corporate raid happened with a guy named Saul Steinberg trying to take over Walt Disney and break it up. And I got some friends of mine, the Bass Brothers in Texas, to come in and kind of save the mouse. And they paid me as their investment advisor on that deal where the Basses took control of Walt Disney and managed to keep it independent. And that was like shocking. I made more money in four weeks than I'd made in four years. Mm. And they asked me to be their investment banker. And so I went to work for Merrill Lynch, um, mergers and acquisition department. And I did that for about four years. Um, quite honestly, I didn't really like investment banking that much. And in um, 1989, when Vim Vendors asked me if I could come produce a movie called Until the End of the World, I kind of jumped at the chance and left investment banking and went back to producing. And I did that movie. I did To Die For with Nicole Kidman. I did a bunch of documentary series for the BBC and PBS, one on oil called The Prize, and one on water called Cadillac Desert. And then um, I was involved with a movie called Shine, which is notorious only insofar as uh, Jeffrey Rush won the Academy Award for Best Actor in it, and I was strangled in public at the Sundance Film Festival by Harvey Weinstein for for not selling him the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so then I began to feel very frustrated in the late 90s that the kind of movies I wanted to make, like to do I4 and Shine were getting harder and harder to make. And all Hollywood seemed to want to do was make kind of cartoon movies. So I, I got entranced by a new technology called, you know, video over the internet. And, and I formed a company called Entertainer, which was the first streaming 
video on demand service. And we got all the rights from all the major studios or most of the major studios to stream movies over the internet. And, you know, we were perhaps a little early. There wasn't as much broadband as we hoped, but eventually it was doing pretty well. And by 2002, we had about 150,000 subscribers. And then um, Sony, which was one of my investors, decided they wanted to do exactly what we were doing. And behind our back went and created a kind of cartel called Movie Link with most of the major studios to do it exclusively. And all of a sudden, we went from having like 8,000 movies to having like eight. So we had to shut it down, and I sued all the major studios in the antitrust court. And so then I couldn't go back to being a movie producer because I was suing them all. Okay. So it doesn't help. Yeah. Uh, the dean of the Annenberg School at the University of Southern California said, well, why don't you come teach? And I did that, and then eventually I won the antitrust suit so I could afford to teach. And um, kept on teaching, started something called the Annenberg Innovation Lab, which ironically had as sponsors some of the companies that had sued me or that I'd been suing. Um, and then I did that until a year and a half ago when I retired and wrote the book, Move Fast and Break Things, which, you know, kind of honestly came out of some of my experiences that I had seen happened to my musician friends. It's a story in the book about Levon Helm, who was the drummer in the band and the lead singer. And in 2000, Levon got throat cancer and couldn't tour anymore. And in 2000, Napster arrived and Levon's record royalties went from making a decent living, $100,000 a year, to no living at all, to just no money at all. And he didn't even have money to pay for his health care or his cancer treatments. And that just seemed deeply unfair. So that kind of led me to try and think, well, what had happened? You're listening to Film Disruptors, and I'm in conversation with Jonathan Taplin. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes. And in this section, John continues talking about the themes of his book, Move Fast and Break Things. And we start by discussing the long tail, an idea which promised much for storytellers, but as yet hasn't fully delivered. The long tail was a nice idea, the idea that if everything in the world was out there available online, the small stuff would be just as important as the big stuff. It actually hasn't worked out that way. I mean, never mind that a lot of the stuff that was out there online was pirated, so the artists never got any money at all, like from people like Kim.com or other bandits like that. Mm-hmm. But the, the other problem was that even if, as in the music business, where between Spotify and Apple Music, there's probably about 
most of the world's music is online in those services. The way algorithms work and things that help you find stuff because there's so much content, it, it actually makes the concentration of media worse. So, you know, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, we used to talk about things like the Pareto curve or the 80-20 rule, that 80% of the output of a, of a major movie studio um, would only earn them 20% of the profits. And um, firstly, 20% of the out output would earn 80% of the profits. Um, so that one in five movies would be a hit and that would pay for everything else. But if you look at the m music business in the last year, it's like 80% of the money goes to 1% of the product. In other words, Jay-Z and Beyonce and Adele and Taylor Swift are millionaires and make huge amounts of money, but a huge amount of the content on these services isn't, isn't listened to by anyone. I mean, there's supposedly two million songs on Spotify that nobody's ever listened to. And I take that to have to do with the nature of search engines and algorithms. You know, it always just benefits the most popular stuff. And of course, when you create playlists of the most popular stuff, then they get listened to more and more and more. And so it, it becomes a problem. And there is not the idea that this is bringing us some great diversity is not really true. Now, that's not to say it couldn't be true in a different system, but the way it is now is not really true. And, and the other biggest problem right now is that, you know, if you look at the record revenues, they're down since Napster arrived about 75%. If you look at newspaper advertising revenues, they're down about 80% since Google arrived. So what's happening is that all the money is flowing into the platforms, which supposedly are there to help you find content, whether it's Google or Facebook or Amazon. And very little of it is actually flowing to the artists themselves. Um, if you were lucky enough to have a very popular tune and if you could get it, sell it on iTunes for a download, you could make $900,000 if you, if you sold a million downloads. But if you sell a million streams on YouTube, you'd make from advertising $900. So it's, it's just absurd. You know, that's, that's a big hit. That's not enough to pay your rent for a month, you know. So, I mean, that's not an economics that'll work as long as YouTube is out there putting everything on it for free. Those kind of platforms purport the, uh, the idea that anyone can make it and, yeah, and they sort of, you know, um, champion the, you know, the, those, I guess those sort of few YouTubers, for example, who, who, who have yeah, but that's that's an illusion that 
YouTube, you know, promotes that anybody, you know, some beauty blogger on YouTube can make millions. If you look at the power curve on YouTube, it's worse than the music business. You know, I mean, you, you've got a few people that may get a million streams a month, but it drops off almost immediately to people who are getting 100 streams a month of their content. And you, you can't even make it. They won't even sell advertising if you only have 100 streams a month. Hmm. Hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's very uneven and only a few people. And, and quite frankly, when you look at the quality of who it is that's actually making money, um, like PewDiePie, this is a guy whose whole business was having people watch him play video games. Hmm. Not do anything creative. Just He's just playing video games and you're, you're watching his screen and hearing him talk. I mean, that's the high art of, of YouTube. I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, you know, there's this wonderful theory called the million monkeys theory, which you may have heard of, which was the idea that if, if you gave a million monkeys typewriters, eventually out of that would come Hamlet, right? Just by pure chance. Um, but there are, I believe, 400 hours of video uploaded to YouTube every minute of every day all over the world. And I have yet to see emerge from that platform a Francis Coppola, a Martin Scorsese, a John Schlesinger, you know, uh, you know, I, I'm just, I'm sorry, but it just hasn't turned out that way. You're listening to Film Disruptors, and I'm in conversation with author and entrepreneur Jonathan Taplin. If you are enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes. In this section, I asked Jonathan about how he sees Netflix's role in the new film landscape. As far as the movie business, I don't think Netflix has really figured it out yet. And my daughter, Daniela, is a very good film producer, and she had a a movie that she took to Sundance that she produced and financed called Beasts of No Nation. And, you know, starring Idris Elba. And, and it was about childhood soldiers in Africa. And Netflix bought it at Sundance, but they refused to release it theatrically. They wanted it just to come out on Netflix right away. And so in a strange way, at least from the point of view of the Academy, which I'm a member of, it didn't get the notice it should have gotten because the Academy members didn't really consider it a movie. It was it was almost, it was unfair. I mean, Idris should have won the best actor. He was so good in it. And it, it wasn't really in, in consideration. I'll, I'll say one other thing about 
the profusion of streaming services, I worry that we have too much TV right now. And, and you know, I, I, there's a guy over here called John Landgraf who runs FX, and he calls it peak TV. And, and he points out that, you know, as recently as like seven years ago, the United States made 280 dramatic television series a year. And last year we made 520. Now the audience didn't grow at all. And Amazon has no secret sauce to make an hour of TV cheaper than ABC television. When Shonda Rhimes moves from ABC to Netflix, She's not going to make her stuff cheaper. So you didn't grow the audience. You didn't have any savings on the production side. So what did you do? You just cannibalized the audience into smaller and smaller niches. Now, maybe for Netflix, that's okay. But I can't imagine that Hulu and Amazon Prime and Netflix and all the other streaming services that are going to compete will be able to survive in the long run in that kind of uh, kind of deflationary economics where you, you know, the supply and demand has got to be out of control because there are only so many hours you can end up spending watching Netflix. A lot, <laughs> As, uh, from, from my experience. Um, but uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and there's there's talk of there being a bubble uh, in 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 this sort of you know the high end drama. Uh, the prices, not only all of this, not only so many more shows being commissioned, but the prices being raised by this competition um, uh, from from these new players. And <coughs> I know over here, certainly the BBC are, are you know, and independent producers are, are struggling to struggling to stay in the game right well this is very interesting uh so i mean where i mean you made a couple of suggestions there john about curation and how that could help i mean where you know what do you uh you know what do you see as being a uh solution or solutions which are which could be possible for giving more um yeah more fairness back into the system well, look, I mean, you you start with the obvious fact that according to the my lab, the Annenberg Innovation Lab that I'm still associated with in some ways, there will be at least 5 billion mobile devices capable of streaming video in the marketplace by the end of next year. That's with a B. Mm. So assuming you could sell something for 50 cents to 5% of that market, that's like $50 million or something, you know? Mm. So once you get into this notion about the law of large numbers, then theoretically, the business ought to be in the best place it could ever be. 
Um, so then the question just becomes, okay, how do you get that money out of the people? So that means, A, getting rid of the YouTube type of piracy effect that certainly in the music business has been deleterious and is to some extent in the movie business, but not as bad. Mm -hmm. um, and secondly, how do you create services where you have a subscription service with 500 million people paying you 10 bucks a month? Um, well, at that point, you've got, you've got so much money that you're creating from a cash flow basis that it ought to be the best time in the history of the, of the movie and film and television business. I mean, that seems to me is what Netflix's aim is, mm, right? Mm, mm, they want to mm. get to 500 million people paying them 10 bucks a month. They're, you know, they're at least a third of the way there. So, I mean, that, and that's what you think about. And, but then you have the second question, which is the issue of monopoly. You know, because if, if what happened on the Internet is ha going to happen on video streaming platforms, then you're going to have two or three people in control of all the content. And then once they're in control, they can kind of manipulate how much they get versus how much the producer of content gets. And that, that would be tragic. John, what's your, I mean, what you you know, you've you've seen a lot of changes in the uh, in the uh, in entertainment industry uh, industries over over your career, and uh, from from when you produced Mean Streets to to writing his book on the on the move fast and break things on the way the internet has evolved. But if you were a storyteller starting out now. Uh, an emerging filmmaker. Maybe this is a conversation you've already had with your daughter. Uh, I'm, I'm sure. What would uh, what would your advice be uh, to 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 someone in that situation? The trick is to be able to get up every morning and look yourself in the eye and say, "What I'm working on right now as a film is worthy and worth it. It's not just a job." You know, the people that I know who got kind of cynical and just said, well, hell, I just want a, a gig. So I don't care if it's a, a, a bad movie or a good movie. I, I just want to work. Whether it's an actor or a director or a, a screenwriter who's just working for, you know, someone tells them what to write and it doesn't come out of their own inspiration. Those jobs, you know, end up making you cynical and bitter. And so if somehow you can figure out a way to make stuff that inspires you, I mean, if I think about like Marty Scorsese's career, with very few exceptions, he never took a job. <laughs> You know, he, he wasn't a director for hire. And so 
that kept him from getting into that kind of cynical place where he was just willing to do whatever, uh, you know, some producer asked him to do. And it kept him inspired in a way that's, that's great. And, you know, I think quite honestly that someone like Francis Coppola uh, had the same thing. And at, at a certain point, when he couldn't make the movies he wanted to make, he just quit. He said, I'll go raise grapes and make wine. You know, that's how much he believed. And then when he made a lot of money in the wine business, he came back and made these really little art movies. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I think my advice to anybody in the arts is just make sure that what you're doing, you feel will, will last to some extent. Don't make ephemera. So that was author and entrepreneur Jonathan Taplin in conversation. If you want to find out more about Jonathan, listen to other episodes or get in touch, please visit the home of Film Disruptors. That's www.alexstoltz.com. And if you are enjoying the show, please subscribe in iTunes or Apple Podcasts and feel free to leave a review. So that's it for this episode. I'd just like to say thank you again for listening and look forward to to seeing you again soon. As anyone listening to this show for a while will know, the business of storytelling is something I'm personally very passionate about. And when I'm not interviewing film disruptors, I love applying this passion and using my expertise to help independent storytellers and filmmakers accomplish their goals and get stories made and seen. I do this by working with storytellers intensively or over a longer period to develop the project and strategy for maximum finance, distribution and commercial impact. If you are a filmmaker or storyteller and would like to find out more about how I can help your project, I would love to hear from you. Please go to alexstoltz.com or just drop me an email at alex at alexstoltz.com dot com.